you've been around church at all, you've probably heard these verses many, many times. There are some things that stand out to us in church, some things that we do in church that maybe stand out more than others, things that stand out that make Christianity seem different from the rest of the world's religions and philosophies. And two of those things likely are the Lord's table and baptism. And yet, amazingly and somewhat tragically, and yet, understandably, baptism especially is often misunderstood. And I don't know about you, but in my experience at 43 and being around church since, well, really since I was born, my folks came to Christ when I was five, so around evangelicalism since I was five, I have found that baptism is either underemphasized in the church or overemphasized in the church. And it has led to a lot of confusion as to what it actually is. In fact, Dr. M. R. Dahan writes, in the early days of the church, baptism was a declaration that the believer was definitely identifying self with that group of people who call who were called Christians and were despised and hated. To be a Christian meant something. To identify yourself with those who were called Christians would meant persecution or maybe even death. It meant being ostracized often from your family or shunned by your friends. And this one act, which was the final declaration of this identification, was baptism. As long as men and women gathered with Christians, or as long as a man or a woman gathered with Christians, he or she was tolerated. But when once he or she submitted to baptism... They were often declared to all the world, I belong to this despised group. And immediately he or she was persecuted or hated or despised. In baptism, therefore, the believer entered into the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. A person might be a believer and keep it strictly a secret and thus avoid unpleasantness and suffering. But once he or she submitted to public baptism, they had burned their bridges behind them. Now, I have experienced something like this in my very personal life. I grew up in a little town about 90 kilometers from here called Harbor Grace. My father got saved when he was, interestingly, 33. I was five. And we had been brought up Anglican our entire life and very staunch Anglican. However, not staunch where you attended everything, but staunch in your identity. And my grandfather, my dad's dad, when my father came to Christ, really didn't seem to care. When my dad came home, because we always went to my grandparents and we always had Sunday family dinner, and my dad came to that, and I remember being five, and I remember very vividly. And my grandfather, uh, who I often have wished my father got his genetic makeup, because then maybe I would have benefited from that, because my grandfather was about 6'3 or 4 and about 320 pounds and was just a giant of a man, and I always wanted to be like my grandfather. My dad is about 5'8 and 160 pounds soaking wet and stutters. He's like his mom. But I remember when my dad came home and told his father that he had gotten saved. My grandfather was basically not interested. It was like a blip on the screen. Interestingly, about two months later, we went back for Sunday dinner, and my father proceeded to tell my grandfather that he had gotten baptized and joined a church. Forth which my grandfather went, got up out of bed, or up out of his day bed, went into his bedroom, 
walked out with my father's birth certificate, went into the backyard, buried it, and looked at us and told my father, you died today. And he was that emphatic in his hate and, and despising of this moment that we would travel back there every Sunday for family dinner, and I don't know how much mental energy my grandfather would put into this, but when we would get there, my dad would extend his hand and say, hey, Dad, how you doing? And my grandfather would not shake it, and he would say this every single Sunday. Who are you? My son died a week ago. And he kept track of that. And so it turned, my son died a year, two months, and three weeks ago. And I, I, as I've gotten older, I've often wondered that. Now, there is a happy ending to this story. My grandfather came to Christ literally 30 days before he died. And I really believe it is because of the faithfulness of my dad. I remember my grandfather yelling and screaming at us and ordering my dad to leave the house many times because dad wanted to say the blessing or dad brought his Bible in with him or my dad offered to give my grandfather a tract. And the slightest little thing would set my grandfather off. And literally, he had a stroke, and about 30 days before he died, God, in his humor, used a young fella who was 12 years old, who happened to be me, to go into his grandfather's bedroom and tell him he didn't want him to go to hell and that he knew his dad was right. And my grandfather accepted Christ before he died, reconciled with his son, and in fact, took a great interest in the church. So when I read something like this or we think about baptism, I have seen and experienced when it was costly to stand for your faith. It's interesting because Jesus has been killed. He's been crucified. He was in the grave for three days. He rises from the dead. He has been appearing now to different people for about 40 days. And when you come to Matthew chapter 28, uh, Paul tells us in Corinthians there was likely 500 plus people here. It wasn't just the disciples. It wasn't just the disciples. And in fact, one of my favorite parts of this passage, if you go back to verse 11, uh, it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests and all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now that is Matthew saying to his day. So to his day, whether he wrote this in the mid-50s or as late as the 70s, somewhere between two decades to four decades, I mean, think about that, 20 years to 40 years later, this was still the prevailing rumor in Israel. The disciples came and stole him. Now, I love verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which went, to which Jesus had directed them. And again, Paul tells us there was also about 500 other people there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And aren't you comforted by this? But some doubted. I, I take great comfort in that. That they worshipped him, but they doubted. They worshipped him, but they wondered, Lord, is this how it's supposed to go? They worshipped him. Now think about who, who might have been, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but having been raised around this, I often think of Tom, doubting Thomas, right? But when you really look at life, I wonder if it was Peter. I wonder if Peter was there again saying, Lord, is this really the game plan? 
because we know Peter's mouth got way ahead of his brain constantly. And it was out after you hear that Matthew says, who was one of the people here, he says, but some doubted that it is followed up with verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, not some of it, not most of it, all of it, all of authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciple of all nations. Now, I want you to notice, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, take notice. Behold is one of Matthew's favorite words in his gospel. Behold, it comes up a lot of times. When it does, you're supposed to stop and take notice. Behold, I'm not sending you off on this mission I'm not giving you this command. I'm not telling you this. Even in the midst of your doubts, even though you are worshiping me, don't you hear the man who said, Lord, I believe in you, but help thou my unbelief. They worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I wanted us on this momentous occasion, in fact, I'm not sure if Calvary has ever had five people get baptized all in one day. Um, wouldn't you love it if five people were getting baptized every Sunday? Like, wouldn't that be great if that was normal? Um, I often get discouraged that, well, I'm encouraged that heaven rejoices even when one sinner comes to the Lord. But I often think, Lord, it'd be great, you know, if five or ten would come on a daily basis. That'd be pretty cool to be a part of that. But there's five people here today who are going to follow Jesus. They're going to identify with Jesus. They're going to declare to not just us, but to the entire world, I am a Christian. I am saved. I'm a believer, a follower of Christ. And so I thought it would be good to simply and very quickly walk through what I've called the five W's of baptism. So we're just going to look at the why or the what why, who, where, and when, all right? We're going to walk through the five W's of baptism. But before I do that, let me walk you through a little bit about the importance of baptism as we get ready to go and celebrate. Baptism is prevalent throughout your entire Bible, really from Genesis to Revelation, but really it kicks into high gear when you get to the New Testament. And I don't know if you know this or not, but either it's verb form or noun form, 96 times you are going to read about baptism in the New Testament. Now, fascinating to me, is that 41 of those 96 times, almost half of them, are recorded in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Now, Luke writes both those. It's like his two-part uh, documentary of the life of Christ and the result of the life of Christ. If you ever want to understand, Luke is basically, let me present to you the Son of Man. Here is Jesus. Acts is, look at what Jesus has done. All right. So this is what you can see. And so 41 times you're going to see baptism show up. In fact, of all 96 times, only twice is it used not in the context of water baptism. So baptism is important. It's important in the Bible. And so I believe it should be important to us. Now, if you want to go even further into a little bit of history so you understand what we're going to watch these five people do today, baptism in Jewish life, in Jewish culture, was considered a sacred rite, a, a sacred rite of both acceptance, of purification, 
and acknowledgement. Often Gentiles would become proselytes to Judaism, and you had to go through things. You had to start reading the Torah. You had to do things. Actually, many of them in the Lord's Day had to learn the first five books of the Old Testament for memory, similar to a Jewish young boy or young lady before her bat mitzvah or a boy's bar mitzvah when they became a man or a woman. But before they, do, after they did all that, before they were actually accepted, they were baptized. Now, when you read the New Testament, Christians were being baptized. Baptized, it was a big deal, to a sense that there was one little thing that you need to realize. In the book of Acts, you'll read about people being baptized in Solomon's court or in the temple because there was all kinds of purification pools there as you got ready to go in and participate in the many sacrifices and festivals and feasts of the Jews. And they didn't bother them when they were being baptized. What really took notice, though, was when they were being baptized in Jesus' name. In fact, in Acts, you will read that when they were baptized in Jesus of Nazareth, they didn't stay in the temple very long. Then people took notice, and then they were told to leave. In fact, we're told later on in Acts about a group of priests that came to the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized in Jesus' name and lost their jobs. They were banned from the temple. And so I want you to realize this history for our five candidates, for every one of us, as we are going to participate as witnesses and as we celebrate with them, I want us to understand the sobriety and and the seriousness of what baptism is. And so we can break it down list this way. First of all, what is baptism? What is baptism? And so really, I want everybody to understand baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's an ordinance of the church exampled and given to us by Jesus. We just read that in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He said, make disciples of all nations. Now notice, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting if you read the Gospel of Mark. Mark starts his Gospel right away in chapter 1 with Jesus being baptized. He ends his Gospel with Jesus being baptized in the sufferings of death and the resurrection, which will bring the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that baptism is an ordinance that was exampled by Christ, and it was given to us by Christ. But also, what is baptism? Baptism is in water to signify and remind us of Jesus. One of the passages Brother John once read before he gets baptized is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. So I'm not going to read it here because you're going to hear it read uh, at our baptismal service. But that is where Paul talks about the fact that we are baptized in water and it reminds us that we have been crucified with Christ. Paul talks about that in Galatians. I'm sure many of you probably have it on a coffee mug or a T-shirt or something on a wall, right? Galatians 2.20, right? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of Jesus Christ. Baptism is that reminder. You watched it in the video. It is meant to be that, that thing you can anchor your decision to follow Christ to and remind you. And by the way, for all of you that are going to come, I want you to realize we're not just there as bystanders and celebrate people. We are there as witnesses. Witnesses that will be involved in community to remind those that are baptized of this day when they fail, when they struggle. Not to go, aha, that's legalism. But to say, I love you too much to let you forget about what happened. 
That's what it means, and we come together. So baptism is an ordinance given to us by Jesus, exampled by Christ. It's in water because it signifies and reminds us of Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus came up out of the water, Matthew tells us. And in fact, you see the entire Trinity there. Jesus comes up out of the water. God the Father speaks and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And what does Matthew tell us? That John saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. And then we know this is the Messiah. So we need to realize what baptism is. So secondly then, why get baptized? Why even do it? Why are John and Kathy and John Hancock and Grace and Earl getting baptized today? Well, again, we go to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. This is a command. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. And the command imperative of go therefore includes all of those links that you see in the passage. And so Jesus was baptized to identify with us. You'll read about that in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus didn't have to be baptized. If you remember it in Matthew 3, John the Baptist is baptizing and Jesus comes to him and says, I will be baptized. And what does John the Baptist say? No, 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 no. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, no. So that the prophecy might be fulfilled, you must baptize me. What prophecy was he talking about? Well, there's over 330 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ that are fulfilled in Christ. Psalm chapter 2 is one of them. And Psalm chapter 22, Psalm 51, and so on and others. But Isaiah, we know that Jesus was baptized to identify with us. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2. He became part of his own creation, perfect, yet he identified with us as sinners, even though he wasn't a sinner. Then Jesus lived and was crucified to save us. You'll read about that in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. It amazes me that Jesus is hanging on a cross after enduring six trials, having been beaten and laughed at and scorned, whipped and crucified innocently, having lived perfectly. And he hangs on that cross and he's been betrayed and abandoned by all of his disciples. He's laughed at and scorned by all those. Even one of the thieves is basically saying, look, if you're a, a, a carnival act, then save us. And yet one of the second last things that Jesus says is, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Has the world ever known anyone so gracious and kind, so loving? And then his last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just for the record, the Bible tells us that Jesus gave himself up. He was not killed. He laid down his life. But I do find it fascinating that Luke would say a Gentile centurion that was there. One of the last things that Luke tells us is this Gentile centurion, when he sees Jesus die, he says, truly, this was the son of God. Truly, this was a righteous man. So why do we get baptized? We get baptized because Jesus was baptized to identify with us. Jesus lived and was crucified to save us. And then the obvious one from our passage in Matthew 28 is we get baptized because Jesus commanded us to be. Now, I want you to make sure you caught something in the video. I love that video, and I wanted to show you because baptism is not, hey, I've arrived, and I'll be perfect now. 
And baptism is not, hey, I've read all the book, I've passed all the tests, now I'm a scholar, watch me tear it up for Jesus. All right? No, watch the sequence in Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's step one. Step two is baptizing them. Now, notice this interestingly. Then he says in verse 20, teaching them, which means then that people that come to Christ and get baptized must need teaching, which means they're not going to know everything about Christ at baptism. I think that's wonderfully encouraging. I hope that gives a great deal of hope to all of those that are getting baptized today, that this is not about you passing a test. I do not want to see some of you that I know your testimonies and I can't wait to hear you share them, but this is not a time for you to share or swap one set of rules for another set of rules. I hope you're not changing one denomination for another, but indeed what you are doing is you have found Christ. You are giving up religion in favor of a relationship with Christ. And I can tell you this, I'll be married for 23 years in August to my childhood sweetheart. I don't see her here, so I think I can gush about this and not get in trouble. I was playing, we were over at the Hancocks on Friday, and with George and Zella, we were playing a little game, a comparison as to who got married earlier and who loved their husband or wife more. And, and it's, it's neck and neck between us anyway. But I will tell you, as much as I thought I knew Debbie 23 years ago, I know her a whole lot more today than I did then. Because for 23 years, I've been discovering new things about my wife. You know what? Christ saved me when I was in my 21st year and now, 22 years later, I can honestly say Christ is sweeter and more dear, and I know far more about him today than I did 21 years ago. And I'm so thankful. I know so, so much more about him than when I was baptized. So baptism is not a baptized because you qualify in the sense of you're perfect. No, baptism is, no, I have found Jesus. And one of my favorite, favorite examples of this in Scripture is the guy who's been born, born blind in Luke if you haven't read that, you need to read it. This guy is born blind, and Jesus comes along and heals him of his blindness. He goes to the temple. Everybody is wanting to figure out, how did you get your sight? And he is complete. He has never seen. He was born blind. Can you imagine what that's like? Imagine him writing his biography. Imagine how green, green looked. I'm telling you, how, how ima imagine, imagine how, how the sun must have looked. I, I often wonder, when he received his sight, did he squint? Was, was, was his mind on, on, on perception overload as all of these new signals were now sent to his brain? And he's in the temple, and there everyone's like, who did this and who did this? And they said, finally, they come to him a third time. And he said, look, all I can tell you is Jesus did it. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he came from. I know this. I was blind. Now I can see. Do you want to meet him? That was the extent of his theology. I once was blind, now I see, would you like to meet him? And that's why, for those of you that are here, one of my favorite sayings is from D.A. Carson who said, we are simply beggars who have found food, who want to tell other beggars where to find it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So we are baptized because Jesus identified with us. We are baptized because Christ lived and died for us. And we are baptized because he commanded us to be. Vance Havner, this old U.S. preacher, said, We may never be martyrs, but we can die to self, to sin, to the world, to our plans and ambitions. That is the significance of baptized. We died with Christ and rose to new life. So who gets baptized? 
Well, I hope that is by obvious by now, but you will find again in those 41 references through Luke and Acts, one thing you will always see glued together through there is those that repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. So you will find it that those that get baptized are those that have repented of their way of thinking, that I can figure it out. Those who have confessed, not only am I a sinner in the sense that I've done bad things, I am sinful. And again, make sure you know the difference, okay? We do, not Jesus, we do not need Jesus because we did something bad and now we're in debt, okay? We don't sin and become sinners. We are sinners, thus we sin, all right? And I know some of you have little children here and you know that. I have never taught, we have three kids, I've never taught one of them how to lie, never taught one of them how to get angry, Never taught one of them how to be selfish. You know the big competition, right? What are they going to say first? Mama or dada or whatever little word you want to have. Normally it's no or me. Because that comes from in here. Now I'll really freak you out. I was once at a baby dedication. Now I don't know if I'm bold enough to do this. But I was once at a baby dedication. When everyone is cooing and con, the beautiful little baby. And the pastor held up the baby and said, this is an enemy of God. You talk about sucking the fun out of the room, right? Well, we need to realize we are born sinners. We are born sinners. We do bad things because we're sinners. And that's why those that get baptized are those who have repented and they've confessed not only of their sin, but their sinfulness. And they've accepted Jesus Christ not only as Lord, but as Savior. You get baptized after you have believed in Jesus. That's the pattern throughout the New Testament. If you study Acts, you'll see it over and over again in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 23. Now, when do you get baptized? Well, I think, again, I've answered it. Anyone who trusts and believes in Jesus gets baptized as their first public step of obedience and commitment to Jesus and to a watching world. And that's Matthew 28 again, right? Make disciples, baptizing the name of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I can have commanded you to follow. And then, finally, where do you get baptized? Well, we have all kinds of examples of this, but I believe the Bible over and over again tells us we are baptized in water by immersion. Now, I don't know if I'm making some enemies here, but I would challenge you to really work. In fact, if you want to know an interesting thing about how some of this confusion about immersion is we have to thank good old King James. All right, back in 1611, some words in your Bible are translated, but some are what's called transliterated. And so when the Bible was being translated into English in 1611 under the order of King James, who at that time was a, a, an Anglican who wanted to stay in good favor with the Anglican church, and so when the translators came to the Greek word baptismal, which actually means to immerse. The translators went to King James and said, what do you want us to do? Well, if they translated it, that would have put them in direct conflict with the theology of the Church of England at the time. So King James said, no, 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 don't do that. So they transliterated it, and hence we now have our English word baptism. Now, we have to understand every reference you're going to read through all of Acts, all of Luke, that Jesus came up out of the water, the Philippian 
uh, jailer, he, he was there, and it says after he was baptized, he came up to his house, which lets us know he had to come somewhere where there was water. John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River. And, and again, even um, the Ethiopian eunuch, when he says, what does prevent me to be baptized? And then you read later and it says they come up out of the water. Today you're going to see five candidates go into the water, be baptized, and come up out of the water. Now, that doesn't make us special. It doesn't give us some sense of right to be arrogant. I hope that it gives us with a great deal of humility and yet resolve to say very quietly and meekly, we just want to do what the Bible seems to clearly state. And so we follow God. And so what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance given to us, an example to us by Christ. Why do we get baptized? Because Jesus identified with us. Now we want to identify with him and he commanded us to do it. Who gets baptized? Those who are truly saved, those that have repented and confessed and accepted Jesus Christ. When do you get baptized? After conversion, when you are able to understand and you are ready to take that step of public declaration with Christ. And then where do you get baptized? Well, in some cases it can be in a river. Some cases it was in the sea. In our case, it'll be in a swimming pool. Some people have baptistries. I do know this. It was always meant to be public, and it was always meant to be memorable. And so as we now move to the next phase of our service, it would be remiss of me to ask what I think is obvious. Is God, through his word, calling you to Jesus this morning? I never want to take it for granted that people, just because they're here in church and maybe been around church, automatically know Jesus or not struggling or doubting, that's okay. But are you sensing God speaking to you through his word, through Jesus, his son, to repent and accept what Jesus has done for you? Remember the video. Jesus provides a way for us to be set free from the slavery of sin. Jesus is our exodus. The question is, will you follow him to the promised land of forgiveness and relationship? I think the most obvious other question would be for all of you that say you are followers of Jesus Christ is, have you followed Jesus in baptism? Have you raised your Ebenezer? You remember that old hymn of the faith, come thou fount of every blessing? And one of the words says, here I raise my Ebenezer. That's a very famous thing that you'll see in Galatians, Colossians, and in the Old Testament, where baptism serves as your reminder. And then Calvary Baptist Church, and to those of you that are from other churches in our city, do you, do we, and will we take Matthew 28, 18 to 20 seriously? Debbie and I were coming back yesterday from Bellevue, and we were talking about some of the different churches in the city and some of the churches that we have the joy and the privilege of knowing people there and of having worship there with them. And we were talking about the number of folks back when we were kids, when we were in our early teens and, and stuff like that, who went to these churches and attended these services and the Colliers and, and Annabelle, who live an hour away, like 114 kilometers, and yet they drive in every week to come to this church. And we were talking about that, and I was reminiscing as a boy in Harbor Grace when my parents first came to Christ. We drove from Harbor Grace in here to St. John's to go to church every single Sunday. And that was before that beautiful divided highway all the way out. In fact, we often had to come the old way. It was a full hour and a half, all right? And I remember doing that Sunday after Sunday, and we would come in here to church, then we'd go to someone's house for dinner, and then we'd spend all afternoon there, and then we would go to church at night. And Debbie made the comment, and of course, I'm, she's going to get really mad at me about this one, because she said to me, well, because heaven forbid you miss a Sunday night service, or you know, no, you know what was going to happen. 
right? Because, again, just in full disclosure, we are recovering legalists, all right? We go to meetings every week, I promise. But you know what? I, I kind of pushed back against my wife at that time, and I said to her, I said, you know, Deb, funny thing was, though, when I remember those days, my parents didn't go to church or make church an important priority all day Sunday like they had to. They really wanted to. It was really an extension of the joy of their relationship. And all the people I knew and grew up around were busy talking to their coworkers and their neighbors and their friends and their extended family about the Lord. And it seems like in an effort to get away from legalism, which I am completely for, it seems like we've lost a little bit of our passion and our urgency and our compassion for those around us. And maybe the answer lies a little bit somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I'm not advocating that you meet 12 times on Sunday. I'm just saying, where's our passion for the lost? To share with people what we say we have found. Who we have found. Where's our passion for the Word of God? To read it and study it. To pray and ask God to show it to us and to guide us. I talked about how we overemphasize or we underemphasize it. Imagine if I did that with my marriage. Imagine after my wedding ceremony to Deb and we slipped the fingers on and, and the na- you know, he says, I'm happy to declare to you, Steve and Debbie Bray, and you may kiss the bride. And I give her the big kiss. And after that, I'm walking out and I go, hey, Deb, listen, thanks for the ceremony. I'm going to go live my life whichever way I want. And when I'm done or when I'm ready, or when I'm done living the way I want to live, I'll show up at the house, flash my ring, and say, here, let me in. How many of you would expect Debbie to just wait till I showed up? How many of you would not come to me and go, dude, you had a sick, twisted view of marriage? How many of you would go to Debbie and say, dude, get rid of him? Because that's not marriage. No, see, the proof that my marriage ceremony was not just for show, is how I live my life each and every day after the ceremony. After the ceremony. For our five candidates, listen, your testimony, I can't wait to hear, but I hope your ongoing testimony will be not, well, I remember this, and again, I'm not taking jabs at this, but I remember the old-time testimony times, and I used to remember older people getting up and saying, I praise the Lord 35 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ saved me, and I remember as a teenager sitting there going, yeah, but has he done anything for you since? Because you know what the testimony time of the New Testament is? Take a look at me now. Look at what God is doing in my life today. Is that our testimony? And so for our baptismal candidates, I hope that you will never forget this day. But I promise that when we go and we actually do the baptism, you'll understand, all of you as a church here understand our responsibility to pray for and love and come alongside these candidates and remind them of what they've done and spur them on, as Hebrews tells us, to love and good deeds and to remind them of their relationship with Christ. So will you come to Jesus? Will you identify with Jesus Will you respond to his love and his sacrifice and promise with your heart and mind and soul? Will you say with us as we sing this song, my Jesus, I love thee. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to again talk about your word, to read your word and to be reminded of your word. Lord, I have to tell you, I feel like I'm running on adrenaline. I'm so excited about what comes next. 
I can't wait to hear the testimonies of John and Kathy and John and Earl and Grace. And I know their testimonies are going to be very different. Some will be very, very simple. Some may be more layered and complex. And yet, you are Lord of all. And you rejoice over them all. And I pray that we as a church will understand that this ordinance that you have given to us is not something we flick out and it is also not something we avoid. We celebrate and yet, Father, we take it seriously. And Father, I do pray if there is one here that doesn't know you that they will feel the presence of you in their heart and mind and soul and feel driven to ask a friend or one of those that they've seen up here on this stage to say, listen, I I need, I want what you seem to have. And that, Father God, you will make yourself known to someone today. I pray for others that are here that they will know the importance and the joy of baptism. And I pray that all of us will understand that Matthew 8, 28, 18 to 20 is not fully done unless we make disciples and baptize and teach And so, Father, fill us and the churches of this city that claim to follow you with a passion and an urgency to follow God and declare Jesus Christ to this city. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.